Welcome to Colors of Influence. I'm your host, Maylene Hamto. My guest today is Joe Enlett, Consul General of the Federated States of Micronesia, based in Portland, Oregon. He has worked in public policy as a community organizer and advocate for many years within the Pacific Islander community, both locally and nationally. Joe was appointed by the Senate President and the House Speaker of the Oregon Legislature to serve on the Oregon State Task Force for addressing racial disparities in home ownership. He is a former policy commissioner for the New Portlander Commission for the City of Portland, and he also served as a member of the Oregon Health Insurance Marketplace Advisory Committee. He's an appointed member of the Washington State Advisory Council to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Joe also serves as a member of the Vancouver Public Schools Equity Advisory Committee. Previously, Joe has served as Senior Policy Analyst at the Multnomah County Public Health Department in the Health Equity Program. He currently serves as President of the COFA Alliance National Network, a local Portland nonprofit advocacy organization with chapters in Washington, Arizona, Texas, and Eastern Oregon. He also sits on the board of directors for the Division Midway Alliance, where he chairs the Capital Improvement Committee. I first met Joe uh, about 10 years ago when I was still very uh, actively involved as a volunteer for the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, APANO, which is a statewide advocacy group um, that was working on a lot of different fronts to advocate for um, you know, basic rights, uh, access to health care, education, etc., for Asian Pacific Islanders in Oregon and beyond. And I uh, was really impressed with Joe's um, leadership of the Micronesian uh, Pacific Islander community. And so we're just really excited to have Joe on the show with us today. Thank you so much, Joe, for making time. Uh, what is your primary charge as the Consul General for the Consulate General of Micronesia? Well, thank you, Maylene. Um, yes, so as the head of the office, um, the uh, Consulate General of Micronesia um, here in Portland, Oregon, um, we're accredited with the Department of State U.S. Um, to have consular jurisdiction over eight uh, different states, and most it's, it's most of the Western states uh, that's included in our jurisdiction. Uh, but our main focus really to kind of narrow it down is to um, look out for the or protect the interest of our country and specifically the citizens of the Federated States of Micronesia who are now living in, in the U.S. and in this part of the U.S. So that could uh, range from uh, assisting them to renew their uh, passports, if they need travel documents or things like that. But we also uh, assist when our uh, citizens need uh, have needs as far as um, getting involved with uh, local law enforcement. We can help uh, to direct them to services. We don't necessarily provide legal assistance, but we can try to help them to navigate. So in, in many ways, we are also kind of like a social service organization that tries to connect uh, people where we can. Uh, but we also serve to be the voice of the people when it comes to engaging with the general public and specifically also with the state governments and local governments. Sometimes when people have issues with their I-9 documents too, we also uh, have to engage with federal agencies. So like Homeland Security, we also deal a lot with the Social Security Administration Office. 
So in general, it's kind of a, a big variety of, of things that we do uh, for our people. Thank you for sharing that context uh, for that really important work to serve the community. And in addition, you're also a pastor at True Logos Community Church in Vancouver, Washington. So can you share a little bit about your life journey um, and what led you to spiritual leadership? So uh, I, you know, was born and raised in a, you know, pretty uh, Christian, you know, family, um, the line of uh, people who have served in the church for uh, for years. Um, so I kind of just grew up in that um, tradition. When, when you know, you grow up on a small island in the middle of the Pacific that you can walk around the entire island in, you know, like a few hours. That's how small and tiny and isolated the island was. Um, so you didn't kind of have any, like, vision to do something else. So I kind of just grew up in that. I um, did explore my faith. Uh, along the way, but it was more kind of just something that we did. You grew up in. So I attended a small uh, college uh, down in Micronesia on an even more remote island. So it was an island off of the main um, island in, in Chuuk, uh, Micronesia. I graduated from that college. I also continued some uh, part of that education in the U.S., but I didn't really have any kind of goal to become a spiritual leader, but that was kind of something that I was, I grew up in. And the more and more I learned and pursued my education and started to question a lot of things, uh, but also reaffirm the things that I believe, um, reading outside of just, you know, strictly Christian literature, I began to think more critically about my faith and what it really means uh, to be a follower of Christ. I went to seminary um, and that, you know, increased my uh, kind of inquiry into uh, my own faith. And I affirmed some things, but I also kind of had to let go of some things that I, I just um, I held because it was just customary. When I graduated in 2012, uh, the year after that, the community was wanting to uh, create a church that would speak to them in their vernacular, in the in the Chukis language uh, up in Vancouver, Washington. And so we, I, you know, met with the community. We spent a couple months just thinking about it, planning, praying about it. And uh, so I felt the call to uh, go into the ministry. But going into that ministry it has also been a, a spiritual formation for me, too, in growing and understanding even more uh, what it means to follow Christ in a fallen uh, society where there's just so much uh, going on in our lives, but often our faith sometimes can be disconnected from the everyday life of, uh, of people and how we uh, live and move uh, in this world. So I have come and grown in that role as a pastor but I always tell my people, we're all pastors. We're all helping each other. I, I do not subscribe to the idea that a pastor has uh, some kind of uh, spiritual hierarchy, you know, that uh, he lords it over other people, but that we are a family together and we grow together. And I also grow spiritually from uh, learning from my uh, congregation as well. And as a quick follow-up, how has your spiritual leadership journey impacted your service to community and also vice versa? In learning more 
uh, and deepening my thinking about my faith, I'm, you know, realizing that a lot of times, at least for the Christian faith, we emphasize certain practices, certain principles, and, and certain things uh, apart from uh, really uh, the reality that the center of it is, is a relationship, that, that there is a person that we relate to, and that that relationship ought to permeate every part of our lives, our thinking, the way that we, we act in the community. And so that has drawn me to my passion, which is social justice, and my passion for equity and for human flourishing, and that those things are central to the message of, uh, of Christ. And that's why learning more and, and experiencing life in the community, but also at the same time, being willing to really go to those places where there's honesty. There's honesty about human suffering, that there's honesty about the inequalities and inequities that people face. There's honesty to look also at systemic racism and things that harm people really on a, uh, on a real daily life situation. That has allowed me to dig even deeper into my faith. And I feel that that's not incompatible at all. That at the core of it, we love because we are in a sometimes unloving world. You know, that, that's the reason why we uh, do the things that we do in our faith is because we respond to what's going on in our world around us. And my faith has also given me a sense of hope. We are honest about the things that are wrong in our world and the things that, you know, we also do wrong. Nobody's perfect. But we can also uh, build a sense of hope that we can look uh uh, also towards the fact that there is a lot of good also in the world. There are a lot of good people too, and that it's a matter of galvanizing a lot of that good and that, uh, to be a force uh, to overcome uh, these issues of, of inequality and of systemic racism, of violence uh, that is prevalent in, in today's world. It's such an important journey of faith and, and of service. And so I'm wondering, in serving the Pacific Islander community, what do you find most gratifying about your work? And also, what do you find most challenging? Let me start first with uh, what's, what's really gratifying. Seeing people come to a place where they feel that their humanity is respected. And let me give just uh, some examples of that. A lot of our people who are, who are here are working hard. Um, a lot of uh, our people are trying to raise their families, and yet they become entangled with and victimized by a lot of the systems here that do not understand uh, the culture, do not understand where people are coming from, and often pass judgment on uh, people without taking effort, uh, putting in effort to really understand people's situation. When we're able to help people overcome some of those challenges, um, I find that people are not so much satisfied by, you know, just simply getting their needs met. You know, for a person to say, well, now I have, let's say, enough to get by or things that they, people are grateful about that. But deeper inside, people feel a recognition of their dignity. 
and and their and their worth as a human being. And I think that's the the deeper fruit of of the work that that is most gratifying to me. When uh, Micronesians uh, first you know came to the uh, to the states and and came to Oregon, a lot of people didn't know where Micronesia was, or you know even today. Um, we're still working on that, but also people didn't understand COFA, the Compact of Free Association, which which is the status that uh, people from the from Micronesia come uh, and are admitted into the U.S. under. Uh, when they come uh, to the U.S. with that status, there there are a lot of barriers, including um, being categorically barred from welfare assistance, food stamps, and things like that. The the, the basic needs that any immigrant would you know find necessary to be able to have a, a fresh start and you know uh, to try to get by in in this uh, new world for them so one of the issues that um, our people had faced was uh, just a lack of healthcare access there there really is no no better way to say it than just say people were denied basic human needs and and that is um, what we feel about healthcare um, but we worked with the Oregon uh, state because efforts on the national level, the federal level, were just not going anywhere. We we focused on Oregon, and then uh, you know, long story short, Oregon was able to help give uh, state-based access to um, health insurance, and then people, you know, for the first time since 1996. People were now able to uh, have access to healthcare. Some people have never seen the doctor at all, uh, except just to go to the emergency room. And this was, you know, a historic moment. And I was interviewed by somebody who asked me, so now you're happy that people are uh, getting healthcare, right? And this was, you know, also a kind of a news uh, outlet that uh, asked me this question. I said, well, you know, I... Of course, I'd be, you know, I'm happy that people are now getting um, access to health insurance. But I said, but the bigger victory and the the deeper success is that for the first time, people felt that they are heard. And being heard is much more powerful than anything, especially for a community that is trying to fit in and a community that feels that they are part of the community, but for some reason continue to be excluded from those basic uh, needs. So that is, um, you know, one of the, an example of the things that, that really gratifies me. When I hear people, you know, people are reaching out to us and wanting to learn from us and really listen, that's what, what's gratifying for me, even when the resources are not there, right? But the fact that people are trying and I know that they are respecting that we are here as a people, that's what gratifies me more than anything. The thing that, um, you know, the challenges still uh, exist, and those are challenges with trying to be recognized. You know, we, we come to dominant culture and try to say, you know, we're here, we're not here to overburden the system and just try to uh, get a handout. A lot of people, if you really sit down with them, People have dreams of raising their families and wanting to contribute to society. But, you know, with income equality, uh, inequality, with lack of access to culturally 
responsive services with a lot of policy barriers, like not being allowed to access uh, health care because of your immigration status. These are some of the things that make it hard for people to get into a place where the dominant culture calls successful contributing members of society. So those are, you know, those continue to be uh, some of the challenges. It's, you know, I'm, I'm just talking kind of in general terms, uh, but there are, you know, very specific things, uh, specific barriers that our people face. So Joe, you've done a lot in terms of advocacy for the Micronesian community over the over many years, and there's still so much work to be done. And I'm wondering what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned along the way in doing this work? Some of the important lessons uh, that I've learned include uh, wisely pacing yourself because, you know, after a while, it becomes uh, pretty burdensome to be doing this uh, type of work. Um, What I've learned is that uh, we have to care about ourselves too, to be our best selves and to ensure that we uh, can be the best advocate for our community, but we can't do that if we're not also advocating for ourselves. We often talk about it, um, and a lot of people do, you know, talk about that, um, but it's another thing to really practice it. And I've, you know, really learned that that's, that's one of the, you know, biggest things that I lack uh, oftentimes as a, as a you know, person of community. But the times that I have done it to just do self-care, um, and to pace myself and understand that uh, you may not get to where you want to get to today, but there's always tomorrow. And then there's always uh, the other, you know, other day after that. But also another thing that, that I've really learned is also to relinquish the idea that things depend on me. So it's really important to understand that I am but a piece of the whole effort. And that I need to also be okay with relinquishing uh, a lot of that responsibility and saying, hey, it's a team effort. And that the resilience of our people is a real thing, that people will get through it. And it doesn't have to always depend on me as, you know, a leader. That there are other people that do this work and who are incredible and who do other things, you know, much better than myself. And I have been so fortunate to be a part of and to partner with uh, incredible leaders in our community and incredible women leaders, I, I might add as well. There, there are so many uh, capable uh, women leaders in our community. And I feel that that's one of the areas that we really need to uh, continue to support and continue to emphasize in uh, building the capacity of our, our people and learning from our sisters and aunties and, and mothers who, who are pillars of our, our community. So I've learned so much to relinquish a lot of that, be more of a, a partner um, with other advocates and leaders. Thank you. That's such a profound and important lesson, relinquishing power. It seems that it requires a lot of self-awareness, a lot of humility to truly live that value in your work and in your service. So I'm wondering, what was that process like for you as a leader, knowing that there's great need in the community for direction and guidance? How did you um, come to that realization and how do you maintain it? 
I think it's just um, what our faith, what my faith calls me to do. Self-reliance is not a good thing, you know, that, that you rely solely on yourself. It's not to say that we don't build self-esteem and self-confidence and knowing that, you know, and drawing on uh, ourselves to find also strength and meaning. But it's also uh, the idea that the world, the world's problems are bigger than just me, right? That, that our faith calls us to be people who are for others and, and vice versa, that we are a collective and that we are all in this together and we're fundamentally connected because we're all part of the human family, right? Uh, on that level. But when we come down to like our communities, that's also some a value in our culture, that our culture thinks about the good of the whole, that it's the collective good that we you know, strive for. Being in a very individualistic culture, it's a challenge, you know, because you know, for us and for our children, we grow up in a very, in a society that highly, highly values and, you know, to a fault, the idea that, you know, you are a person for yourself, that you need to focus on yourself and, you know, and pursue your own dreams. But our culture teaches us that you better yourself but you take everybody with you when you are successful, because when you are also needing help, you also give that to the community as well. And we all help each other. That's, that's the wisdom of our culture. And I've, you know, in terms of specific practices, um, for me to be reminded of that had, and, and I say had in the past tense, because he, uh, he's passed away a mentor, a person who I would, you know, go to, who, you know, is an older gentleman, um, Chukis in our community, who was, you know, kind of a, a culturally uh, wise person who I just love to go and sit uh, by him and just listen to him talk and talk about our culture, talk about the values of working together. He taught me that, um, you know, in the Micronesian uh, uh, culture, uh, the finished product is often not the goal, but the process to getting to that finished product is the more valuable thing. So when we're building a hut, um, you know, if you observe Micronesians, they will come together and work for 15 minutes and then take a break and start chatting for 20 minutes <laughs> and then get back to it. And, you know, something that can be done in one week will take maybe a month to finish. But at the end of the one month, we celebrate not just uh, the hut and that product, but we've celebrated our growth together. We've learned more about each other. And those are, you know, some of the things that I've taken from my faith and from my culture to, to come to that point where I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I need to be more of a communal, collective-focused leader because that's the way that people are in our communities. I also want to quickly touch on the points that you made earlier about honoring the power of women in the Micronesian community to encourage and empower their leadership. So can you speak more about why this is important to you as a leader, uh, especially as a male leader in your community? First of all, I want to acknowledge as we're talking 
about women, you know, my own mom and my, you know, matriarchs in my, in my family, but also my extended, you know, aunties. And I, I have a pretty, you know, close relationship with them. And they are the glue to our family and the leaders um, within our families. In our culture, uh, women have a special role that often from, you know, from an outside point of view, uh, you would miss it. In our culture, your status in the society actually is determined by the mother you come from. So we are a matrilineal society. Um, though we take the last names from, from our dads, which is really a Western influence, we consider ourselves from our mom, mother's plans. When there is war, uh, women have the power to stop war. You don't inherit anything from your dad's side. You inherit from the, from the mom's side. Mothers also are the ones who own the lands and it is the decision of the woman as to the transfer of ownership, which basically is our wealth in Micronesia land, because it's so scarce. So, you know, th there's so much in our culture that places a lot of dignity and value in women. Of course, in, in terms of kind of the practice of that, there can be questions about whether, you know, is that true or not. But that is what the culture is, the way that the culture is built. Coming from that culture, I have a sense of understanding how, you know, when I compare that to a different culture that doesn't see um, or put value in women, though it may not be as explicitly saying that women are not as valuable, but in terms of what we can see in society, the practices of putting women down, unequal treatment of women, violence against, uh, you know, women, those are things that make me more uh, I guess, aware of how I am in, in relation to the women members of my community and my spheres of influence. I want to also mention that I'm in an organization that has, you know, a lot of women leaders too. And, you know, we have an ambassador in our country, uh, the representative to um, the UN, who is a woman and a very strong leader and a very capable um, leader. Since our founding as a, as a nation, we've had a few examples of women who are leaders and they have been strong voices for the community. In fact, in, in the Pacific, the Marshall Islands uh, was the first uh, country in the Pacific to have a female president. Those are the examples that I look to that inform me as well. I also that I happen to have two little girls. I feel that I have also learned by growing with them, by understanding the challenges that young women face in the world that I as a male cannot uh, cannot experience, uh, did not experience and do not experience uh, just because I'm, I'm male. That has, you know, also had a way to influence me by helping me uh, be more, more on the heart level right? You know, kind of understanding, hey, you know, there are real challenges that young women face. And because they're my daughters, I kind of, it makes me like much more aware of it. And it makes me want to do something about it too, um, as much as I can. But at the same time, I realize that sometimes it's a matter of allowing and empowering them 
to be able to express themselves. And by doing that, I don't necessarily do anything, but by giving them that space and allowing them to express themselves, um, I think it, it gives them self-confidence to continue to do that and to become the leaders that they can be. My The vice president of, of uh, CAN is a, is a woman who I, I just want to mention here because she she's inspiring. She's a mentor to me. Uh, I'm the president. She's a vice president. But I will say that uh, for all intents and purposes, she's the heart and soul of our uh, organization and just is, is amazing um, in what work that she does. And I really want to continue to learn uh, from her because I know that if that happens in everywhere, uh, everywhere we go, uh, the world will be much, a much better place, a much more equitable and just society. Thank you. That's so inspiring. And I think that you're really modeling for other male leaders about how best to advocate for women leaders in the community to ensure there's parity, to ensure that we're all uh, working toward greater equity. So on a similar topic uh, regarding leadership, can you share with us some of the best and some of the most useful advice that you've received? One of the things that I I, I remember uh, vividly was when I was preparing as a you know young man to leave uh, Micronesia and come to the states, and um, you know as I was I was preparing, I um, found myself in a, a community center where a lot of boys you know come there, and you know we would come there. It's kind of our hangout place. And when I was there, uh, one of our elders uh, leaders who I looked up to and, you know, he comes in he, and, you know, every, when, when somebody's kind of going to be traveling, leaving, like it's a huge community event. Right. So when I was preparing to leave, he comes in, he said something that kind of struck me. He said, where are you going? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to the States. And then, uh, and he says, people are dying. What more are you looking for? And that was, it's kind of an open-ended question. I didn't have an answer to it. And he was very supportive of me going, but he wanted to make the point. There is a sense of urgency in this world because people are dying, that people are dying needlessly, that there are people who are not successful in living up to their dreams and accomplishing what they want to accomplish. I know that that was the, the meaning behind his question. And I've used that also in our advocacy efforts. When we went to the legislature and, you know, they asked us about the cost of putting in a um, healthcare program for Micronesians. And basically, I just said, you know, people are dying today because they don't have access to healthcare. People are dying, you know, uh, from chronic diseases, preventable diseases, just because they don't have access to a primary care doctor, they don't have the resources. Those are, are some of the challenges that come uh, and, and people literally are dying young. In our community, there's diabetes is a, is a huge uh, problem. We have also a lot of hypertension. There's a lot of cancers and a lot of the uh, causes uh, come from really historical disparities. Uh, because of, you know, nuclear bomb testings in the Marshall Islands, the colonization of our communities and, and our diets and re reliance on processed foods. A lot of that stuff 
together um, has put people in a place where they're more vulnerable and susceptible, you know, susceptible to uh, these preventable. I, I stress, you know, they're preventable diseases. The sense of urgency to under to always keep in mind that people are suffering in this world has been a really good advice for me. You know, when I uh, somehow am thinking about, okay, I want to pursue this, and I, I can never stop thinking about what about my people? What are what is their experience? How will this personal accomplishment? Uh, help others. And that's why I say that that one question has stuck with me, um, has been a really, really good advice. It's just uh, another advice, which I uh, uh, got while while here in the US. And one of them was just, you know, again, a very simple statement, and said, don't be afraid to be who you are. And, you know, that seems kind of cliche, you know, in, in society. But it really means uh, much more when I and a lot of our people from the Micronesian community struggle with the issue of invisibility. And there are a few layers to that, but invisibility just because people really don't know where Micronesia is. You know, people have said, is that like a, a place in Russia? Or, you know, people have you know, many different ideas about like where, what is Micronesia? And so, when, when I'm asked, and a lot of people do this, when they're asked, they, they don't want to have to explain everything. So they say the nearest island. So they'll say, oh, I'm from Hawaii, you know, or at least I'm Samoan and people know, you know, kind of those. And so the conversation is like, oh, okay, well, yeah. Then you feel a sense of like, okay, people understand you and you are accepted. So there is that issue of invisibility. And a lot of times people feel almost burdened. It's also a lot of work to continue to explain who you are because it feels like you're justifying your existence. Why are you even here from Micronesia, right? So as a leader, it was hard also for me to, in a larger setting, public setting, to say, hey, I'm from Micronesia, you know? And But I've, I've uh, grown to not be afraid of saying where I'm from that it's not a deficit to be a Micronesian. I am an indigenous person from Chuuk, from the islands of Micronesia. And people have come to recognize and appreciate that. So, Joe, much of your work in the community has been about bridging and building across diverse communities. Um, in working with uh, the political and civic leaders and elected officials in the Northwest, particularly in Oregon, what are some of the most common myths that you've had to dispel about the Micronesian community, the Pacific Islander community as a whole? Uh, I think one of the one of the things that I often uh, face when when trying to kind of explain, try to bridge the gap in understanding of Micronesia, is that a lot of people think that uh, Micronesians are here because they don't like their countries, but that they come here and they want to be somehow escape uh, that life that, you know, they've left. There's an assumption that, you know, when you come here, it's because America is exceptional to your country and your, that comes up, you know, in very subtle ways, um, where people almost make, uh, say statements that make you feel like 
I need to be grateful that I'm here uh, in the U.S. And, you know, a lot of people are, but people have to also understand that it took so much sacrifice to leave their homelands. And when you talk to a Micronesian, even me, who's lived, you know, for decades outside of Micronesia, in our daily uh, talk, we will say back home. And back home refers not to the state you're living in here. Back home is always home in Micronesia because it is central to who we are. That people who come here, come here and they want to be part of this country, but it's not because they do not like their country or uh, somehow feel that our country is less than uh, the U.S. The people still carry them. And I think that's one thing that is really important because when we talk about language access, uh, language access to us is not just about helping people to um, assimilate into the culture. And that's what I feel like language services are, you know, trying to assimilate people, that people are escaping an old, bad, obsolete culture and trying to get into a new culture. No, people bring that with them. And it took blood, sweat, and tears for them to, to leave their countries. And also, people, if they could choose, they would want to stay in their own countries, right? Because they love their countries. That's one of the things that I've, you know, among, among many things, that is one of the things I find fascinating um, in helping to bridge the gap in understanding. The other part that I see from our community side is often also uh, community members um, feel that, again, they cannot really identify with their culture because that will... Uh, be seen as you're you're kind of not as civilized as the Western culture. And I've also had to instill in people that faith and confidence in their own culture and and talk to them and say, no, actually, you bring a lot of value. You value because you're increasing the diversity of viewpoints and the diversity of identity here. That's actually a plus for you. People answer questions and, you know, I understand it out of fear. People answer questions by saying what they think that the other person would want to hear. So whether it be a a person at a service agency or a teacher or anybody in society that asks them about their culture, the natural response because of, you know, colonialism and all that pressure, the natural response from Micronesian is really to respond in a way that is like, I, I need to appease them. And I need to say something that they want to hear. And and for some young person, they might say, well, I don't want to say that I don't understand it in my language, but I want to say that I understand because that's what that person would want. And that's kind of a dynamic that, you know, I, you know, try to uh, try to work in also to instill confidence in, in the people in their own culture, but also educating others that, you know, people actually love their cultures and people want to identify with their own cultures. Thank you. I appreciate you naming that, uh, Joe. Um, definitely pride in culture, pride in heritage is something that people, especially newcomers, must maintain. Uh, in order not to completely lose ourselves in the process of assimilation, in the process of acculturation. 
Uh, speaking for myself as an immigrant, um, as a settler colonialist from the Philippines, I've been here for almost 30 years. I, I try to maintain my connection with my community, keep up with what's going on back home. I still have family back home. And it's often hard because, as you mentioned, the dominant culture tends to impose its will on marginalized identities. And so the work you do in empowering Micronesians to be proud of who they are and what they bring to America's diversity is so important. Um, keep up the great work. It's really important that we, we continue to do that. And on a related note, I'm wondering, how do you bring your cultural background to the work that you do? Um, to give like a, a concrete example, for our organization, the uh, CAN organization, COFA Alliance National Network, uh, which is based in, in Oregon, but we've, we now have you know, a few chapters in different states. The way that we do legislative work to pass you know, bills that, um, that help uh, our communities, we've done it really in, a, in an intentionally Micronesian way, which is to unite and bring people together to own together the story and also own together the issue. And that is exemplified in the fact that, you know, we have about uh, six or seven bills that we've had passed in the Oregon legislature, including healthcare access and including, you know, access to certain types of jobs. We've had all of our bills passed unanimously, not a single negative vote over the years. And I mean, you know, healthcare itself is, is a very controversial issue when you think about partisanship in the state. And yet we've been able to bring together everybody to agree to that. And that is very intentional. We said, well, you know, we want to work with, of course, our, our natural people who we've been, we've known and have been working with, like, you know, the Democratic Party. But we want to intentionally reach out to the other side. Because, you know, our community is not partisan at all. We, we just want to be here and pursue what's good and social justice and all, you know, good for all. And so we reached out to uh, people um, from the Republican side and they have taken us in a lot of our bills. We actually had Republican chief uh, sponsors uh, for the bills. And now we have really great relationship with them, too, when it comes to uh, specifically COPA issues. And that is how I, I said that that's the Micronesian way, that we bring together people to agree. And by agreeing is we tell our stories. We're not at all like policy experts or things like that, although we, we can work in that realm. But that's not like kind of our go-to. Our go-to is to tell our story. Because at the end of the day, we can all share in each other's stories because we're all human. We all share dreams and, and we all have fears and we all want to belong. And I think that that's one of the ways that we, we brought a very uh, Micronesian culture style to the way that we advocate, to the way that we organize our communities and the way that we get support from, you know, the power brokers. Uh, there. We don't agree on every single thing, of course, that, that's a given. But we can come together on certain important issues if we take the time to build the relationship and make that front and center. The policy can come and follow, but the relationship is front and center. That's excellent. That's such an important uh, point to make about the possibility and also in your community's experience, the reality of bipartisanship about being able to reach out across the aisle to get 
policy work done, um, policy that really benefits the community as a whole. And I know that it's hard to do in Oregon politics and in other you know parts of the country as well, where both sides are now so entrenched in their in their positions. So I'm wondering what strategies have you cultivated to ensure that you maintain your core personal values and your integrity in doing the work? When we uh, are part of like, let's say a movement or uh, some policy work, I make it a point to always revert back to the community voice. Everything that we do, we are always checking in with the community because sometimes when we become involved as leaders, we think that you know, we're always speaking for the community. Sometimes we miss, uh, there can become, there can be a disconnect, especially when, and I, I see this happen in a lot of cultural communities is that, you know, the community will want to organize, they come together, they create an organization. But then as time goes on, the organization can become just because of the influence of the way the system is set up we become victims of that system. And, and in being victimized, we become so narrowly focused on, we got to meet these goals and objectives and deadlines there, there's money involved. And we become so uh, focused on managing that, that the connection to the community kind of just gets, you know, lost. And so that is something that I've uh, experienced and observed. And I know that we have done that also we've perpetuated that having learned from those mistakes it is you know one of my kind of core objectives in whatever that we do that we need to go back to the community ask the community you know get validation from the community that what we're doing and what we're working on is actually what the community wants so that the voice of the community continues to be front and center in, in anything that we're doing because we can't just assume Plus, I understand that for a first-generation um, immigrant, we may see things differently from the next generation. They have different issues as well. Also, if I'm a male leader, I have to also understand that there are a lot of blind spots. I have a lot of blind spots where I don't know and see the perspective of the women in our uh, community, of the youth in our community. And that has to be an ongoing conversation. So that's one of the ways that I make sure that as a leader, I am true to who we are as a community and that I, you know, keep that the sense of community integrity, too, in, in this work. Yeah, that's so important. And, th and thank you for naming that. I, I just want to say that I've watched your leadership of the Pacific Islander Micronesian community from my vantage point as an active volunteer and member of APANO the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, you know, from about 2010 through 2016. And, and in what I've observed, um, you've really exemplified and really embodied the values of amplifying community voice and staying true to your work. And I know that with all of the, the busyness that you do, that you have with uh, work at, uh, as being consul general, leading your congregation, as well as all of the community work that you do on behalf of Port various Portland area commissions, Vancouver area commissions, that in addition to all of that, you've also recently embarked on a new academic journey. Uh, can you share more about um, the doctoral program that you're in? And also, what are you most excited to learn? 
Yeah, so um, I am excited about um, uh, this program uh, that I, I've entered. It is a Doctor of Law and Policy program at Northeastern University, and they have a, a campus uh, in Seattle, uh, Washington. So technically, I am a student uh, in that uh, campus. But the program really allows us to uh, delve into the world of law and policy in the United States. But there is also an openness for us to be uh, working on the specific issues that affect our communities. So that's, you know, one of the main attractions for this program for me, because a lot of the, you know, the arena that I most usually find myself working in is really, you know, in the policy world. And a lot of that policy is, of course, affected by um, the law and constitution. The For us Micronesians, there's also um, a lot of issues based on the international treaty that we have you know, the Compact of Free Association. So th that's why on a content level, uh, it is providing kind of me that uh, place where I can really uh, work and study policies and see how I can be a better advocate for my community. But being able to speak the language of policy among, you know, policymakers. Someone said that you have to learn the syntax, right, in order to be able to critique that syntax and then critique uh, from the inside. For me, it's really to become a better advocate. And so that's what I think this um, program um, offers. I also think that just for me, I'm a very inquisitive and curious person. I, I like to question things and not just take things, you know, on the surface level, but really, you know, kind of dig deeper because often there are messages that we miss just by reading something, but not understanding where it comes from. Why is it worded the way that it's worded? Why are people for this and against this? And those that kind of on a personal level, I'm just a very you know curious person want to do that. I want to also instill in my family the idea that if I can do it, any one of us can do it. I I I want to kind of put that uh, out there and say Micronesians can also get their doctoral degrees, that Micronesians have a lot to offer. That So to me, it's like this journey also going into this program, though it's taken, it's going to take a lot uh, also, I feel is also for my family and for my community. When I was going to graduate school in seminary, I could not have done it alone. But we had to bring together my brother. I have a few brothers who are also married. We brought together four families, you know, and even more in one house. And we all lived together. We were all, you know, we were married. We had our own children, but we lived in one house for years in order for me to get through my, for me and my brothers to get through education. And you know, that's a story that I tell because I say anything that we accomplish really literally on a personal level is the fruit of the relationship that we have on a family and community level. That That's the reason why I was successful. I know that my success right now also um, will be dependent on the support and help that I get from my family. And when I graduated 
from uh, my seminary studies. I continued to help my other brothers to finish their schooling. Um, you know, my one of my my younger brother now is a an attorney in in the Federated States of Micronesia in the Supreme Court. He's a staff attorney there, and he was also living in that same house uh, that we lived. It was actually a, a town home uh, that we were renting with uh, you know three bedrooms with it, but we made it work. That's so great. And, and congratulations, best wishes on your doctoral journey. Um, I'm also in a doctoral program myself, and I know that the road ahead <laughs> uh, can be very challenging. And so with all your commitments to community, your family, your congregation, I can only imagine how busy you are these days. And of course, on top of all that, we're also living through one of the most challenging years in our lifetime. Uh, we are dealing with a global pandemic, uh, economic uncertainty, political and civil unrest, the continuing fight for racial justice. And so during these most challenging times, uh, what gives you hope? I find hope in the reality that our people are strong and resilient people. That though they suffer and, you know, uh, right now, I believe that they will rise up. You know, there will be casualties and, you know, there are people who have already, you know, lost their lives, not just in our own community, but in the community at large. But I believe that in the resilience and strength of our community, that we will, uh, that good will prevail, that in the end, we will get through this. In our Micronesian culture, navigation is a huge part uh, of who we are. The traditional skills of navigation continue to exist in Micronesia on, you know, very small remote islands. And uh, those incredible navigational skills uh, kind of embody how the wisdom of our people in traversing, uh, you know, the seas, and you know how seas can be, you know, dangerous places, and but people have learned to master that. Our, a, a navigation whiz, word of wisdom is the navigator, when he's on uh, his, you know, canoe, his, his vessel, he will be in the middle of the ocean where you can't see a, a whole thing. Um, you don't have a compass or anything. You know, it's all just kind of, you know, the blue ocean. And he can say with 100% confidence, looking ahead and saying, I can see the island. You know, though literally, I mean, you can't see it with your eyes. But you can see it with the eyes of your heart because you have confidence in the wisdom of your ancestors. And that is literally what a great navigator, his name is Mao Piailuk, he single-handedly brought back the art of navigation to the people of Hawaii and started, you know, uh, the whole navigation movement now in Hawaii. Um, this navigator's name is Mao Piailuk. And when they interviewed him, he said, if it looks like I have confidence and strength, and he said, it is because I am confident in the wisdom of my ancestors. And I think that that is kind of a word of hope for a navigator to look out and see nothing but blue ocean, and yet in his heart believe that the land is right ahead, that he can see it, he can close his eyes and see it. And that is kind of a, a wisdom that I want to invoke here as well. In order to have hope, you have to um, see with your heart and believe that 
um, we will get there because of the wisdom and resilience of the people who have gone ahead, who have gone before us, and because of the people who are here and those who will come after us. Thank you so much, Joe. That was such powerful medicine, such a powerful metaphor for how um, we should navigate these difficult times. Really appreciate you sharing the wisdom of your ancestors. And it's great to know that the indigenous ways are being kept alive in the islands. And and we need these guiding messages, these really important reminders uh, to keep us hopeful. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And those are all the questions that I have. Uh, this has been such a wonderful, um, peeling uh, conversation. I really enjoyed the, the time we had today. And so I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add. We're always open to um, sharing about our community. That though we have felt that there are things that have harmed our communities, I want to acknowledge that there is also fear and mistrust because of a number of reasons. But at the same time, we want people to get to know our Micronesian community. And if there's anything anybody wants to ask or wants to follow up with to ask uh, any one of our organizations or community leaders, we're happy to share that. Uh, we're happy to talk about Micronesia and let people know about us. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Colors of Influence. This is your host, Maylene Hamto, and my guest was Joe Enlet, Consul General of the Federated States of Micronesia. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to or follow Colors of Influence everywhere you get your podcast. For updates, please follow us on Instagram at Colors of Influence and on Twitter, Colors Influence. Email us your ideas for future topics and guests at pod at colorsofinfluence.com. 